0: A simple rule to observe in the scriptures and your life is the 180 principle. The premise of this principle is a basic circle. A circle has 360 degrees. From your start at 1% to 180%, you are at exact opposite positions. In the realm of the spirit, the 180 is easily seen. God is light. Satan is darkness. God is love. Satan is hate. God is peace. Satan is turmoil. God is faith. Satan is unbelief. God is life, even eternal life. Satan is death, even eternal cognizant damnation. These are the same types of measure, but at opposite ends of the yardstick. God is one, and Satan is thirty-six. God's children have eyes to see this phenomenon. Two disciples sorrowed over the crucifixion of their Lord and communed one with another on the way to Emmaus. Luke twenty four thirteen through 21 And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score four longs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden, that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these, that ye have one to another as ye walk, and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed in deed, and word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel, and beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Jesus Christ, God's creator of the universe and all its life forms, hung upon a wooden cross suspended between heaven and earth and hanging between two thieves as a naked pauper, They beat him, spat upon him, publicly shamed and ridiculed him, and they finally killed him. That was what the high priest and the Romans saw, a dead pauper. That is what his apostles, his family, and his disciples saw. To them all was lost, and in their deep, heart-rending sorrow they moved on. What actually happened could not be a more illustrious example of the 180 principle. God and Satan saw something entirely different. God saw Satan's legal claim on the lost sons and daughters of Adam broken and a way of escape, a highway of holiness erected for the born-again children of God to walk in. This glorious highway takes its pilgrims directly through the pearly gates and into eternal life. God calls it reconciliation. That is what God saw. But Satan saw the opposite the 180. Satan didn't see a shamed and naked pauper hanging dead upon a cross. He saw his stranglehold on the lost sons and daughters of Adam broken. He saw his chains of darkness shattered by Christ's glorious light. He saw millions of captive souls set free, and he saw all power and authority given to Jesus Christ and his body. Satan saw his challenge to God in Job chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 totally vanquished job 2 3 through 5 reads and the lord said unto satan hast thou considered my servant job that there is none like unto him a perfect and an upright man one that feareth god and escheweth evil and still he holdeth fast his integrity although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause and satan answered the lord and said skin for skin Yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life, but put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. It didn't happen. Satan's argument was dissolved. That is what Satan saw. Two disciples sorrowed over the crucifixion of the Lord on their way to Emmaus, believing all was lost, but in reality all was gained. Dear visitor, have you yet to make a decision for Jesus Christ? Be advised, it is not what it appears. It is not some kind of vague and churchy experience, void of any real contact with God and His supernatural realm. Surely at this place called Born Again, the true 180 takes place. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Everything changes. It really does. In the unsaved condition, an individual is traveling Route 7 South disobedience, and that road leads to hell. When you are converted, when you are born again, you do a U-turn and are now on Route 7 North obedience, This road leads to eternal life, the exact opposite. Are you ready to participate in the 180 of all time? Will today be the day all your sin and shame are erased? Will today be the day all of Satan's bondages in your life are broken, no matter how ominous they may seem? Today will be the day of your salvation if you follow me in this simple prompt. Are you ready? Do it now. Click on the Further with Jesus for childlike instructions and immediate entry into the kingdom of God. Now for today's subject. God said, Genesis nineteen twenty four and 25, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. God said, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. God said, Romans 12, verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Man said, I'm a good person. I don't kill or steal. If there is a God in the Judgment Day, He'll see all my goodness and welcome me into heaven. He is a God of love, isn't He? And it doesn't matter who I love, because love is love. Get with the times, Bible thumpers. Now the record. Welcome to God Said, Man Said feature Article 961 that will once again certify the complete supernatural inerrancy of God's holy Bible. All of these powerful features are archived here in text and streaming audio and stand in defense of the gospel and where they function as a platform of truth and certainty from which to reconcile the lost unto God through Christ Jesus. Every Thursday eve, God willing, they grow by one. Thank you for coming. May the beauty of your salvation shine with expectation. There is nothing in this universe like God's beautiful book found in His majority text Holy Bible, and even this is an understatement. This is feature 41 of the God Said Man Said Jot and Tittle series, where in rapid fashion we offer one God proof after another. At the end of this series, we will revert back to God Said Man Said's regular format. A year or so from now, God willing, we will publish an additional 100 God-proofs. You need to know it's true. Everything, and I mean everything, depends upon it. Today, prepare for God-proofs 296 to 300. God-proof 296, Genesis chapter 19, verses 24 through 26. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. The Bible records in the book of Genesis that in the days of the patriarch Abraham and his nephew Lot, there existed two very wicked cities by the names of Sodom and Gomorrah. All the men of the city of Sodom were homosexual. It is from this city's name that the word sodomy finds its root. Homosexuals are, in fact, known as sodomites. Genesis records that God destroyed these two wicked cities, as well as the cities of Adma and Zeboam, miraculously by raining down upon them brimstone and fire out of heaven. For the record, allow me to enumerate the names of great biblical people that not only believed God's record of Sodom and Gomorrah, but also wrote about the matter. Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah, the apostle Peter, John, and Paul, Jude, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Were the great prophets and apostles of the Bible duped by faith? Did Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, have it wrong? Of course, the answer is an emphatic no. The historians in the time of and preceding Christ, as well as the discoveries of today, concur over and over again with the Genesis record. Unquestionably, one of the world's greatest historians and biblical chronologists was Bishop Usher, lived in the 1600s and penned a huge tome titled The Annals of the World. The following excerpt is from that book, and it concerns Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham invited angels who looked like traveling men into his house and gave them a feast. These angels reiterated the promise of the birth of Isaac for Sarah's sake. They foretold the judgment of utter destruction which God intended to bring upon the five cities of the plain. Abraham, fearing what would become of Lot and his family in Sodom, made intercession to God for the sparing of that place. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adama, and Zeboam, for their horrible sins— perished by fire and brimstone that rained down upon them from heaven. These cities were to be an example to all wicked men in times to come of the pains of that everlasting fire to be inflicted on them in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The monument of this remains to this day even the Dead Sea. The valley of Siddam, where these five cities stood in former times, was full of brimstone and salt pits, this has since grown into a vast lake, which because of the brimstone still floating in it is called Lacus Asphaltus, or Lake of Brimstone, and because of the salt, Mar Salsum, or the Salt Sea. Concerning this, Selenius, in the third century, wrote this, A long way off from Jerusalem there lies a woeful spectacle of a country to be seen, which was blasted from heaven and appeared by the blackness of the earth falling all to cinders. There were in that place before this two cities, one called Sodom, the other Gomorrah, where if an apple grew, though it appeared to be ripe, yet it was not at all edible. Its outer skin contained nothing within it except a stinking smell mingled with ashes, and if ever so slightly touched, sent forth a smoke, and the rest fell into a light dust of powder. End of quote. Sodom and Gomorrah were once part of the Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley is part of a huge fracture in the earth's crust. According to geologists, around 2000 B.C., again the time of Sodom's judgment, this area literally plunged into an abyss or hole, end of quotes. Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, absolutely yes. God proof number 297, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, and then chapter 1 in the 17th verse. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Even at a cellular level, the structure of life revolves around Jesus Christ, of whom Revelation nineteen thirteen says, and his name is called the Word of God. Even your DNA, spoken into existence by God's Word, uses a four-letter alphabet from which comes all of life's building instructions. Consider that Jesus Christ is known as the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, and every letter in between, and every word they construct. Imagine that every word ever spoken is sourced in Christ, who is the very word of His Father. Every word ever spoken revolves around Jesus Christ. If the word is true, it is pro-Christ. If false, it is anti-Christ. Everything visible and invisible is constructed and held together by God's words. The following paragraphs are from the God said man uh, said feature, excuse me, the cross and Laminin. Jesus Christ is the center of our molecular structure. He is the center of the universe in a most literal way. No discovery, scientific or otherwise, will ever controvert this truth. God is such a marvelous master of detail. His forethought and handiwork is glorious to behold. Keep in mind as we continue that God created all things by Christ Jesus and that he knows the end from the beginning. A brother in the Lord forwarded an email to God Said Mad Said concerning a sermon by Louis Giglio which addressed laminin, a protein central to life and its association with Jesus Christ. Surely the master of detail shows his hand. Concerning laminin, Wikipedia reports the following. Laminins are major proteins in the basal lamina, one of the layers of the basement membrane, a protein network foundation for most cells and organs. The laminins are an important and biologically active part of the basal lamina, influencing cell differentiation, migration, adhesion, as well as phenotype and survival. Laminins are trimeric proteins that contain an A-chain, a B-chain, and a Y-chain, found in five, four, and three genetic variants, respectively. The laminin molecules are named according to their chain composition. Thus, laminin 511 contains A5, B1, and Y1 chains. Fourteen other chain uh, combinations have been identified in vivo. The trimeric proteins intersect to form a cross-like structure that can bind to other cell membrane and extracellular matrix molecules. The three shorter arms are particularly good at binding to other laminin molecules, which allows them to form sheets. The long arm is capable of binding to cells, which helps anchor organized tissue cells to the membrane. The laminins are a family of glycoproteins that are integral part of the structural scaffolding in almost every tissue of an organism. They are secreted and incorporated into cell-associated extracellular matrices. Laminin is vital for the maintenance and survival of tissues. To recap, laminin influences cell differentiation, influences cell migration, influences phenotype and survival, is the scaffolding, and almost every tissue of an organism and laminin is that which holds life together. The following is a picture of laminin. Coincidence, do you think? Colossians one seventeen, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Noah Webster defines consist, to stand together, to be in a fixed or a permanent state as a body composed of parts in union or connection, hence to be supported and maintained. Jesus Christ is the center of our molecular structure and it is his cross that holds all things together. A few beautiful verses about the cross of Christ follow. Colossians 1, verse 20, And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Ephesians 2:13 through 16 But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to making himself himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby." Note that verse 16 tells us that we are made one body by the cross, and it's true both spiritually and physically. Jesus Christ is the center of all creation. God proof number 298, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found the liar. Romans uh, chapter 12, excuse me, verse 2, And be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Famed psychiatrist Sigmund Freud led a revolution against the godly minded and popularized the idea that religion was an illusion and a neurosis, a global mental disorder that needed discarded. The following excerpts are from Patrick Glenn's book, God and the Evidence. Yet the last quarter of the 20th century has not been kind to the psychoanalytic vision. Most significant has been the exposure of Freud's views of religion, not to mention a host of other matters, as entirely fallacious. Ironically enough, scientific research in psychology over the past 25 years has demonstrated that far from being a neurosis or source of neurosis as Freud and his disciples claim religious belief is one of the most consistent correlates of overall mental health and happiness. Study after study has shown a powerful relationship between religious belief and practice on one hand, and healthy behaviors with regard to such problems as suicide, alcohol and drug abuse, divorce, depression, even, perhaps surprisingly, levels of sexual satisfaction in marriage on the other. In short, the empirical data run exactly contrary to the supposedly scientific consensus of the psychotherapeutic profession. The peculiarity of the situation is highlighted by David B. Larson, a former National Institutes of Health psychiatrist, who has cataloged many of these studies. If a new health treatment, was discovered that helped to reduce the rate of teenage suicide, prevent drug and alcohol abuse, improve treatment for depression, reduce recovery time from surgery, lower divorce rates, and enhance a sense of well-being, one would think that every physician in the country would be scrambling to try it. Yet what if the critics denounced this treatment as harmful, despite research findings that showed it to be effective more than 80% of the time. Which would you be more ready to believe? The assertions of the critics based on their opinions, or the results of the clinical trials based upon research? The new treatment that Larson is talking about, of course, is religious faith. Numerous studies show that religious believers are far less likely than non-believers to commit suicide, abuse drugs or alcohol, experience debilitating stress, or get depressed or divorced. Moreover, people of committed religious faith consistently report much higher levels of personal happiness and psychological well-being than do their agnostic or atheistic counterparts. To have overlooked such a powerful source of mental well-being, indeed, to have mistaken it for a form of mental disorder, cannot be counted a minor oversight in a discipline that nominated itself as the science of mental health while freud dismissed religion as little more than a neurotic illusion the emerging wisdom in psychology is that at least some variety to have overlooked such a powerful source of mental well-being indeed to have mistaken it for a form of mental disorder cannot be counted a minor oversight in a discipline It nominated itself as the science of mental health. While Freud dismissed religion as little more than a neurotic illusion, the emerging wisdom in psychology is that at least some varieties of religious experience are beneficial for mental health. The New York Times reported in 1991, the result is that growing numbers of uh, psychologists are finding religion, if not in their personal lives, at least in their data what was once at best an unfashionable topic in psychology, has been born again as a respectable focus for scientific research. Far from replacing religion, modern psychology at the close of the 20th century seems to be reacquainting itself with religion, re-importing into psychological theory many of the religious ideas and moral categories that were once banished as vestiges of an obsolete an unscientific worldview. Of course, there always was an alternative strand of thinking among a psychological theorist that was far less hostile to religion than Freud was. Jung's differences with his former mentor on this issue are well known. Among all my patients in the second half of my life, Jung observed in 1932, there has not been one whose problem in the last resort was not that of finding a religious outlook on life— It is safe to say that every one of them fell ill, because he had lost that which the living religions of every age have given their followers, and none of them has been really healed who did not regain his religious outlook. Young played an indirect role in the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous, in which the acknowledgment of a higher power forms a central plank of this most famously successful treatment for alcoholism. The last thing Freud would have predicted as the outcome of more than a half century's scientific psychological research and therapeutic experience was the rediscovery of the soul, end of quotes. The mind of man needs healed and transformed and renewed by the Word of God. God proof number 299, Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. The God of the carnal academics is evolution. Even as God's word answers our common questions, evolution answers theirs. Questions such as, 1. Where did I come from? Evolution's answer, You exploded out of basically nothing. Number 2. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Evolution's answer, You are an accident with no real overarching purpose. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Number three, where am I going when I die? Evolution's answer, nowhere. Could evolution actually be true? Is your cousin a banana and your father a monkey? In the book, In Six Days, subheaded, Why Fifty Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation, edited by J.F. Ashton, Ph.D., Dr. J.R. Bergman points out the absurdity of evolution using an example of the body's 206 independent bones that somehow evolved out of the great sea of randomness, Bergman writes. Many researchers have concluded that the probability of life arising from chance is so remote that we have to label it an impossibility. For example, Hoyle, notes that the probability of drawing either ten white or ten black balls out of a large box full of balls that contains equal numbers of black and white balls is five times out of one million. If we increase the number to 100 and draw sets of 100 balls, the probability of drawing 100 black or 100 white balls in, in succession is now so low as to be, for all practical purposes, impossible." To illustrate this concept as applied in biology, an ordered structure of just 206 parts will be examined. This is not a large number. The adult human skeleton, for example, contains on the average 206 separate bones, all assembled together in a perfectly integrated functioning whole, and all body systems, even our cells' organelles, are far more complex than this. Bergman calculates that the chance of a random assortment of man's 206 bones being formed into his present form to be the number of one followed by 388 zeros. Again, Dr. Bergman writes, Achievement of only the correct general position required, ignoring for now where the bones came from, their upside-down or right-side-up placement, their alignment, the origin of the tendons, ligaments, and other supporting structures, for all 206 parts will occur only once out of 10 to the 388th random assortments. This means one chance out of 10 to the 388th power exists of the correct order being selected on the first trial and each and every other trial afterward, given all the bones as they presently exist in our body. If one new trial could be completed every second for a a single second available in all of the estimated evolutionary view of astronomical time, about 10 to 20 billion years, using the most conservative estimate gives us 10 to the 18th power seconds. The chances that the correct general position will be obtained by random is less than once in 10 billion years. This will produce a probability of only one out of 10 to the 388th power minus 18, or one in 10 to the 370th power. Remember, that's uh, 370 zeros. Further, all the parts must both first exist and be instantaneously assembled properly in order for the organism to function. For all practical purposes, a zero possibility exists that the correct general position of only 206 parts could be obtained simultaneously by chance, and the average human has about 75 trillion cells. The human cerebral cortex alone contains over 10 billion cells, all arranged in the proper order, and each of these cells is itself infinitely complex from a human standpoint. Each of the cells in the human body consists of multi-thousands of basic parts, such as organelles, and multi-millions of complex proteins and other parts, all of which must be assembled both correctly and instantaneously as a unit in order to function. This requires balance and assembly. It must be maintained even during cell division. This illustration indicates that the argument commonly used by evolutionists, given enough time, anything is possible, is wanting. Evolutionary naturalism claims that the bone system happened as a result of time, luck, and natural forces, the last element actually holding the status of a god. Scientists recognize this problem, and this is why Stephen Jay Gould concluded that humans are a glorious evolutionary accident, which requires 60 trillion contingent events. End of quotes. Surely the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God proof number 300, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, Behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The Scriptures refer to Moses over 800 times. Yet the skeptics claim it's questionable that he ever existed, that Israel was in bondage in Egypt, or that Moses led them out via the Red Sea. Unfortunately for the skeptics, the ancient historians left a report. The following excerpts are from Dr. G. Jeffrey's book, Unveiling Mysteries of the Bible. It is fascinating to note that Strabo, another Greek historian and geographer, born in 54 B.C., also uh, confirmed the history of the Jews and their escape from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Strabo wrote in his book, Geography About Moses. Among many things believed respecting the temple and inhabitants of Jerusalem, the report most credited is that the Egyptians were the ancestors of the present Jews. An Egyptian priest named Moses, who possessed a portion of the country called Lower Egypt, being dissatisfied with the institutions there, left it and came to Judea with a large body of people who worshipped the divinity." Deodorus uh, Siculus was a Greek historian born in Sicily who lived from 80 to 15 BC. He wrote extensively, creating a set of 40 volumes now called the Library of History. Deodorus uh, traveled extensively throughout the Middle East, acquiring a vast knowledge of ancient events. In his history, Deodorus reported, "...in ancient times there happened a great plague in Egypt." and many ascribed the cause of it to God, who was offended with them, because they, there were many strangers in the land by whom foreign rites and ceremonies were employed in their worship of the deity. The Egyptians concluded, therefore, that unless all strangers were driven out of the country, they should never be freed from their miseries. Upon this, as some writers tell us, the most eminent and enterprising of those foreigners who were in Egypt and obliged to leave the country— who retired into the province now called Judea, which was not so far from Egypt, and in those time uninhabited. These immigrants were led by Moses, who was superior to all in wisdom and prowess. He gave them laws, and ordained that they should have no images of the gods, because there was only one deity, the heaven, which surrounds all things, and is Lord of the whole." The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus reported that two ancient Egyptian priest-scholars, Manetho and Sheramon specifically named both Joseph and Moses as leaders of the Jews in their history of Egypt. Josephus recorded that the Egyptians remembered a tradition of an exodus from their country by the Jews, whom they hated because they believed the Israelites were unclean. Manetho and Cherimon stated that the Jews rejected Egyptian customs, including the national worship of Egyptian gods. Most important, these pagan historians acknowledged that the Jews killed the animals that the Egyptians believed were sacred, a reference to the Israelites' practice of sacrificing lambs on the first Passover before they fled from Egypt. These historians also confirmed that the Israelites immigrated Um, uh, to the area of southern Syria, which was the Egyptian term describing ancient Israel. Perhaps the most important confirmation is found in the statement by Manetho that the sudden exodus from Egypt occurred in the reign of Amenophis, son of Ramses, and father of Sethos, who reigned toward the close of the 18th century, which places the exodus between 1500 and 1400 B.C., This evidence confirms the chronological data found in the Old Testament that suggests the exodus occurred approximately 1491 B.C. An important Egyptian historical manuscript was discovered in Egypt more than a century ago. Remarkably, this ancient papyrus parallels the history of the exodus account as found in the Scriptures. This manuscript recorded the writings of an ancient Egyptian named Aipur, the Papyrus Manuscript, now called the Ipour Papyrus, was discovered by someone named Anastasi in the area of Memphis, near the pyramids of Saqqara in Egypt. The Museum of Leiden in the Netherlands acquired the Papyrus in 1828. The Ipour Papyrus was translated and published in English for the first time in 1909 by Professor Alan H. Gardner titled, The Admonitions of an Egyptian Sage from a Hieratic Papyrus in Leiden. Gardner wrote that the manuscript was one that recorded a genuine historical catastrophe when the whole country of Egypt was in distress and violence. It is no merely local disturbance that is here described, but a great and overwhelming national disaster. Gardner suggests that Ipor was an Egyptian sage who directed his writings to the king as a complaint that the national catastrophe was in part caused by the king's failure to act and deal with the crisis, end of quotes. God's word is true and righteous altogether, every jot and every tittle, miracles included. Romans chapter 1, verse 28 describes a condition that falls upon those who approach the word of God in unbelief. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Reprobate means worthless. Truly this curse is abundant, and a diligent search to discover it is not needed. God requires childlike faith. Without it, it is impossible to please him, Hebrews eleven six. Choose God and his word and live. God said, Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. God said, Exodus 3, verse 10, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Man said, I'm a good person. I don't kill or steal. If there is a God and a judgment day, he'll see all my goodness and welcome me into heaven. He is a God of love, isn't he? And it doesn't matter who I love, because love is love. Get with the times, Bible thumpers. Now you have. The record.